Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Yerv Malkonian, a second-year law student at Columbia University. We'll be discussing his note, Regulation Best Interest in the State Agency Conflict, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. I'll link to the note in the show notes for today's episode. Yerv, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. Your your note is about the intersection or maybe even the conflict of federal regulation around broker-dealer standards and state regulation or state inputs into that process. I wonder if we could set the stage a little bit by maybe touching on what the menu of options for standards for broker-dealer conduct toward their customers might be. Uh, What are some of the different approaches that have been implemented by different regulators? What are some of the approaches that have been proposed uh, by either scholars or policymakers or advocates? And where has the SEC fallen in all those options? Sure. So, it's been quite a patchwork of different laws, regulations, and rules. And it's a patchwork I'd characterize not only sort of vertically between federal, state, and sort of FINRA levels, but also horizontally, because within each of those categories, it's, it's shifting as well. So, you know, to start with the basics, on the federal level, for broker-dealer standards of conduct, it's informed by sort of the relationship between the Securities Exchange Act and the Investment Advisors Act. And there, the broker-dealer exemption and the Investment Advisors Act you know, excludes broker-dealers from the fiduciary duty that investment advisors are typically subject to, and that fiduciary duty was read into the statute in 1963. And so on that level, broker-dealers are not blanketedly subject to fiduciary duty to retail customers. However, there has been a line of federal cases in the several circuits that was kicked off by a D.C. Circuit case in 1949 which extended fiduciary-like duties to broker-dealers on the basis of a very fact-intensive inquiry about whether the broker-dealer was acting like an investment advisor and the relationship between the broker-dealer and the retail customer. So on that front, there is some sort of federal common law, if you will, trying to extend that duty to broker-dealers, but it's extremely fact-intensive and doesn't really provide an ex-ante view of which broker-dealers fall within that or not. Moving to the state level, you see that you know states are extremely varied in how they treat broker-dealers. So you have some states that have implemented through their common law uh, fiduciary duty, and states like California, Missouri, South Dakota, and South Carolina. You have other states that have fiduciary-like duties or heightened duties that they subject broker-dealers to. In Delaware, for instance, the Delaware Supreme Court has some cases that compare you know, the broker-dealer duties to duties of corporate directors, the duties of loyalty. And you also have states that provide relatively little protection, like New York, which just presumes an arm's-length transaction between the retail customer and the broker-dealer, but will acknowledge additional protections if provided for by contract or other means. So you see that huge diversity in cases, and, and it's really reflected in state administrative decisions as well as state common law. And finally, the third level, I'd say, are the FINRA duties, which is just really the main one here is the suitability rule. But suitability talks about sort of what kinds of investments are appropriate to prescribe to a retail customer, but does not account for, say, conflicted recommendations, which is what really gets at the crux of what the SEC was trying to get at with Reg BI. 
So REGVI, trying to categorize it is a tad difficult. Where the SEC has fallen on the spectrum is that you know, they wanted to implement a, a uniform duty of some sort to all broker-dealers, but have explicitly rejected the word fiduciary. And that sort of analysis is done in the commentary in the Federal Register that accompanied the final promulgation of the rule. And so on that front, they are, at least by rejecting the word fiduciary, are slightly below the states that have acknowledged that word and the legal implications that come with it, but are above some other states in their determination of heightened duty. So how did we get to Reg BI, and how is the approach that it takes different than what other regulators with jurisdiction over broker-dealers have done? Is it sure. consistent or inconsistent, or is that the right way to look at it even? The Reg BI has a long backstory, and I think the SEC has been wrestling with how to treat broker-dealer standards of conduct for a while. But I think the appropriate place to start, although there is additional sort of history before then, is the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 and the Section 913, which specifically talks about sort of the differential in duties between investment advisors and broker-dealers and delegates the SEC the authority to rulemake in this area. And Section 913 has a rich legislative history as well, four debates in the House and the Senate, in addition to a variety of different draftings of what the final form of that would take place. But in the end, Congress settled on two main points in Section 913. The first is the commissioning of a study that the SEC completed in 2011, and that study would include details on gaps in the current regulatory framework that I had discussed and you know, additional economic inefficiencies that might lie in the interstitches of that. And the second component of Section 913 was giving the SC the authority to implement a fiduciary duty on behalf of broker-dealers, but also, and there's some litigation over whether this language is ambiguous and to what extent it represents this, but also the authority of, to the SEC to generally rulemake in the area of standards of conduct of broker-dealers, even if it's not a full fiduciary duty itself. So the SEC commissioned its study in 2011, and in that study, they came up with two main points. The first was that there should be a uniform fiduciary duty between investment advisors and broker-dealers. And the second is that there should be further harmonization of the regulations regarding disclosure advertising, books, records, and other ancillary provisions on that front. And the main motivation on that is this change in the broker-dealer industry that's really underlying this need for reform. And the change in the broker-dealer industry comes from the application of a regulatory regime that was written in the 30s and 40s and modified with the 1963 decision that the Supreme Court handed down, sending fiduciary duty to investment advisors. But then you couple that with what you're seeing in the industry, which is that broker-dealers are starting to come up with more creative commission structures. Uh, Broker-dealers are representing themselves as financial advisors, and investment advisors are representing themselves as financial advisors, and financial advisor has no legal weight behind it. So consumers mm-hmm. are you know, getting a bit lost within the weeds there, and there was a Rand Corporation report actually commissioned in 2008 that the SC relied on pretty heavily that said that a lot of consumers didn't really know the differences between any of them, and in fact were attracted to broker-dealers more so than investment advisors because you didn't need as many funds to open an account on average with a broker-dealer. So all these findings and these trends in the industry diverging from the legal framework really led to this need to create Reg BI. Now, Reg BI itself, there is a change in the SEC and, and obviously uh, economic pressures and political pressures have changed as well. And after the Department of Labor had actually 
had its own version of a fiduciary rule that applied to broker-dealers advising retirement accounts. That was struck down by the Fifth Circuit, and since then, the SEC has decided to implement a new kind of regulation that didn't go as far as the Department of Labor did in terms of pushing all the way a fiduciary duty, but it's certainly more expansive than that. And so the SEC Reg BI final rule, all broker-dealers that deal with retail customers advising retirement accounts, and the SEC rule also provides for rigorous closure requirements. However, as I mentioned before, it expressly rejects the term fiduciary, and there is some sort of ambiguity in terms of what a broker-dealer is to do if confronted with the opportunity to advance conflicted advice to a retail customer. And the SEC said that they specifically changed the language from the report in the 2011 report to make clear that a broker-dealer can give conflicted advice as long as it is still in the best interest of the customer. So there seem to be some tensions in what the SEC is writing in the text of the rule, what the study indicated in 2011, and that's left a lot of commentators and industry experts rather confused about what the true nature of Reg BI is, and it's only just gotten into effect, so the long-term effects of Reg BI may be still unclear for many. That's what the SEC has done with Reg BI. Of course, this is an area of concurrent federal and state jurisdiction, and every state has a securities regulator that is active in the ex-ante regulation of broker-dealers, also in enforcement in the broker-dealer space. How have state securities regulators responded to Reg BI, or how have state legislatures responded to Reg BI? So states have, I call it state dissent in my note, because I think that ties into sort of the federalism literature that I also bring into a lot of this analysis. But I think dissent is the right word, because states are speaking out against what the SEC did and using language that indicates their belief that the SEC has failed to carry out sort of a statutory responsibility that they had that was passed down from Congress in Section 913 of Dodd-Frank. So a number of states have either proposed regulations or legislated in the area to delegate to state agencies to propose regulations in this area that there should be a fiduciary duty extended to broker-dealers registered within that state. And so states are drawing on the traditional police power that they have in sort of the areas of securities law that has been gradually carved out over many decades, most recently by the NSMIA in 1996. But still, the standards of conduct was never carved out and explicitly reserved to Congress. So both states and federal authorities have been regulating in this area. So the states that took very strong stances were New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Nevada. And all three of them have language and sort of the proposals that they have sent out in their calls for comments and the ideas that they've entertained, in addition to sort of press conferences that they had, that they were disappointed by the SEC's conduct and thought it wasn't living up to its full statutory mandate. In addition to that, New York and Connecticut were states that implemented fiduciary rules in more limited capacities. And other states have considered fiduciary rules either in their legislatures or agencies, such as Illinois and Maryland, but have decided against them due to public hearings and things like that and eventually came out on the other end. Uh, so all of those states now are joining the states that had already implemented a fiduciary duty to broker-dealers through common law. So now you have a really interesting patchwork of you know, some states looking to regulation and legislation as a medium through which to enforce this, and other states looking at you know keeping their common law obligations the same. 
And the final sort of element of this is before the preemption analysis between states and the federal government, states are also appealing to administrative law for relief. So uh, a coalition of eight attorneys general have filed suit in the Second Circuit along with XY Planning. The suit is essentially alleging that there's arbitrary and capricious rulemaking authority that was exercised by the SEC in violation of the APA. And in addition to that, are also alleging that the SEC acted outside of its statutory authority that Section 913 gave it. So while that litigation is underway, there is a lot of language in addition to the administrative law side that indicates a federalism conflict and preemption analysis that is impending. So you mentioned the possibility of preemption or the need for preemption analysis. And so that does raise the question, which you address pretty extensively in the note, does Reg BI preempt these state responses? How should courts address that? And wrapped up in all that is whether Reg BI serves as a regulatory floor or as a regulatory ceiling. This entire question of how Reg BI ties into the framework is also related to you know, how we categorize states and where Reg BI falls within them. But my eventual conclusion that I make in the note is that Reg BI sets a preemption floor, meaning that all states that are under-enforcing, under sort of the Reg BI standard, will have to be pushed up to the Reg BI level. But all states that go above that are not affected by Reg BI because meeting a higher duty also satisfies meeting the lower duty that is federally imposed. And so on that front, the people who are going to be adjudicating this issue are the federal courts. And preemption is inherently a federal common law doctrine. So undergoing that analysis, the touchstone that the Supreme Court has consistently referred to, and preemption doctrine is widely written about, and there are some sort of differences in interpretation about sort of the validity of certain kinds of preemption over other, but it is well established that preemption's touchstone is congressional intent. And that's even the case when an agency is the one promulgating the rule that eventually will conflict with the state law. The court will have to look at Congress's intention in Section 913, what Congress intended the SEC's rules effect to be. So while Congress never provided for an express allowance of preemption in Section 913, the theory that would be most appropriate is implied preemption. And there are two kinds of implied preemption. There's field and conflict. And field preemption typically applies to things, for instance, such as foreign affairs, how states can't you know, regulate in that area. But states have a long history of regulating in security, so field preemption doesn't apply there. And so under conflict preemption, which is the other kind of implied preemption, the court will have to look at to what extent the underlying rule that the SC is promulgated conflicts with state laws that may also be on the same exact subject. And so teeing up that conflict is something that's already been in the making with all of these conflicting state standards versus Reg BI. And so there's going to have to be an analysis of what exactly Reg BI sort of stands for and how much more rigorous is it than certain kinds of states or less rigorous is it than a fiduciary standard. So that's going to be sort of an issue litigated in the courts, certainly. But moving on from that, it's going to be important looking at congressional intent, what we can deduce from there. And the short answer is that Congress really never <laughs> talked about any sort of preemption issues when they were passing Section 913. And it's not apparent on any of the floor debates, either in the House or the Senate. So on that front, you know, the record is somewhat silent. A possibility of full standardization, meaning that Reg BI takes out all state laws, is very hard to justify. But looking at floors or ceilings is a little more convincing, and there we have to analyze whether the accomplishment and execution of congressional objectives is not hindered by a state law that's directly in conflict with the federal law. 
And the principle that I eventually ground this entire analysis in is regulatory arbitrage and Congress's concern for regulatory arbitrage in Section 913. It comes up when the rules of legal regulation don't follow the economic substance of what's actually going on between the parties. And you have this scenario in which the 1963 the Supreme Court decision creating this regulatory framework is one that has a high differential in duties between investment advisors and broker-dealers. But you're seeing the industry tends towards smaller and smaller reduction of the costs of transitioning between a broker-dealer and an investment advisor. And nowadays, billing yourself as a financial advisor, dual registering between the two, you see that there's a lot of fluidity between the two categories. And the legal regulation has such a wide disparity in duties that it's creating a regulatory arbitrage problem. You can see that concern, you know, really undergirding a lot of Congress's debates on the floor. And drawing on that, you can then analogize and, and argue that implementing a regulatory floor is the only way in which you get to reconcile the huge differential in duties with the small cost of transitioning between broker-dealers and investment advisors. Because allowing states to legislate and make the duty smaller comports with congressional objectives. And alternatively, allowing for states to be under-enforcing, meaning states for standards that widen the differential between investment advisors and broker-dealers, are ones that are exacerbating the regulatory arbitrage that Congress sought to prevent. And therefore, under the conflict preemption analysis, those kinds of states will not be able to keep the status quo because it will conflict with Congress's intent in Section 913. So if we set aside the question of preemption and look more normatively at the relative roles of the SEC and state regulators in policing broker-dealer behavior and setting standards for broker-dealer conduct, what would you view the normative roles as being, particularly as we have to consider questions about the pros and cons of uniformity of standards, and then also the questions of either over-enforcement or under-enforcement? How should that breakdown roughly follow? Sure. So it's a hard question. And I think regulators themselves, from a bird's eye view, don't really have the data to answer that most accurately and how the optimal balance can be struck between sort of state and federal regulators. And that's something I treat a good amount in my, in my note as well. And discussing the lack of framework for weighing the studies that have been done on state fiduciary rules and differing fiduciary standards versus federal broker-dealer conduct rules. And I think the debate really runs along three different dimensions on the first point, which is under empirics, right? And so those three dimensions are returns to investors, access to broker-dealer services, and the confusion of retail customers. Those are the three dimensions that a lot of the data has tried to elucidate a bit more. And there have been some studies that suggest, after analyzing 20 different states of varying broker-dealer standards, finding that there's a 51 basis point increase in certain kinds of investment products over others, or finding that there's no statistically significant difference in the costs associated with certain kinds of broker-dealer firms. So there is some promising evidence to show that variation in broker-dealer standards is not as damning as a lot of industry advocates and other uh, groups have put forward in a lot of the SEC comments that were submitted. On the other hand, there was a good amount of data that was collected in the wake of the Department of Labor rule that was promulgated because that, for the first time, was a nationwide duty that was imposed on broker-dealers that implemented a fiduciary standard. And there, some of the data shows that there was reduced access to certain kinds of products and certain brokerages had to close down or have higher asset minimums 
in order to service retail customers, meaning that people were not able to access these services as easily. But again, there's really no easy way to adjudicate those studies because the current dispositive question is whether in the wake of Reg BI, we could have several states implement higher standards. And to what extent those several states implementing higher standards will cause brokerages to shut down or offer fewer services. Or alternatively, they may be able to indeed offer better returns for residents of those states. So there are a lot of variables at play here. And the lack of really good data on any of that is really a problem. And I think that leads into the second more normative principle that's underlying all of this, which is that straightforwardly, the preemption floor analysis is important because it allows the SEC to set a baseline and state regulators to achieve better investor protections. That's not good only because achieves a normative standard of investor protection that some individuals may advocate for, but it also keeps the SEC accountable yeah, using federalist process and using democratic actors who are the states and keeps a vital policy debate alive through allowing states to legislate in their own arenas of power and being able to come up with better policies and collect more data on how their own residents may be responding to fiduciary duties, et cetera. What Reg VI would do if it were entirely preemptive is really shut down that very vital policy debate for which there is very little data to shed light on how we want the optimal allocation of federal versus state power. And this area is already so confusing with the variation in state laws that it's very difficult to pull out several studies and make broad conclusions based off of that. One certain thing, though, is that in a federalist system like the one that we have, there are ample examples in the past of you know states keeping agencies accountable in that states are able to do that on two fronts. First, on an enforcement front, right, if the SEC and state regulators are able to use federal laws and standards, you know, there's a competitive enforcement force happening there. And where one agency slacks off, the other one can take its place. And the good thing about state agencies is that a lot of them have elected leaders. For instance, the Massachusetts Secretary of State is the one running the security sort of agency there, and he's elected. Or in New York State, the Attorney General, who is also an elected official, is the one doing this sort of enforcement. But also on the policy front, keeping the SEC accountable with additional data and keeping the laboratories of experimentation idea alive within our federalist system is an important one to ensuring that we have better information, and better policy moving forward in the broker-dealer space. What key takeaways would you like our listeners and the readers of this note to have from your work here? So I'd say there are two big takeaways. The first is that Reg VI is an uncertain regulation, and it's uncertain in substance and how it may apply, but it's also uncertain in its relationship to state laws, through which there are a variety and how it may impact many investors throughout the country. So the first takeaway of this paper is that Reg VI is most convincingly interpreted as a preemption floor, meaning that any state laws that are under-enforcing won't apply anymore, and states will be free to legislate in the areas above that. But the second takeaway I would characterize is a more descriptive one. It describes the broker-dealer regulatory space in differing terms than what it used to be. It used to be a more cooperative federalist system where the SEC was the one leading with FINRA suitability rules and states were implementing those federal standards and not really dissenting in the way that you see now. So there's been a serious rupture in that relationship and 
It's not necessarily a bad one. It's one that is going to allow for more policy debate, democratically accountable actors, and framing the issue in this Federalist lens can allow for better acquisition of data that is vital to the policy debate, of understanding how broker-dealer duties should, in fact, be structured throughout the United States, and also will keep the SEC accountable in that process through competitive enforcement and also through keeping that vital policy debate alive. Our guest today has been Yerv Malkonian, a second-year law student at Columbia University. We've discussed his note, Regulating Best Interest in the State Agency Conflict, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. I'll add a link to the note in the show notes for today's episode. Yerv, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.